Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. As we look at Genesis 20 this morning, you know, we've, we've passed on from especially the last couple of chapters as God revealed himself to be uh, a just and righteous God. Of how God poured out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and this was absolutely deserving. And then beyond that we also saw the, the life of Lot which is meant to be a warning to all believers in the way that we are to live our lives and how we should be concerned about those in our families and those around us. And now we come back and the focus is back on Abraham. And really what we see from this passage, from really the life of Abraham because he is the father of the faith, is to learn more and more about our journey of faith as well, aside from the the historical redemptive storyline that is going on. And one of the things that we need to realize is that our faith will always be imperfect. But we have a perfect God and a perfect Savior who will then, in this journey of faith, seek to perfect this faith, seek to grow this faith through trials and the messes of our life. Through circumstances and other people, he will use all these things to purify our faith, to mature our faith, and to perfect our faith. So that ultimately, we will learn simply to trust in our God and lean on him alone. See, Abraham, as you know, has grown a lot in his faith. But he still has to learn to trust God to take care of him as he journeys on in this life of faith. And there's still some hurdles that he has to jump over. And that's what we see that God will do here. And really, even beyond that, what we see in this passage is that while on the one side he is continuing to purify Abraham's faith and building his faith and strengthening his faith, we will see here that Abraham will mess up again. But despite the failure of Abraham, despite the failure of God's people, God will still be faithful to fulfill his promises. This morning we're going to look at Genesis 20 under four headings. 
we're going to look at Abraham's deception in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to look at God's intervention in verses 3 to 7. And then Abimelech's confrontation in verses 8 through 13. And then God's restitution in verses 14 through to 18. And again, to remind you, this is to help us to see how God is gracious, to fulfill His promises, to perfect the faith of His children even when they mess up. And He will use the mess up and the trials even to continue to build the faith of His people. So firstly, Abraham's deception, verses 1 and 2. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. If you remember, Abraham had settled down in Hebron, near the Oaks of Memre. And he was there for quite a while, for quite a few years. Now the text doesn't say why Abraham specifically moved from Hebron, from the Oaks of Memre. Maybe it was that if he continued to stay in Hebron and every time he looked over that cliff, you know, he could still see the devastation of Sodom and he just wanted to get away from that. Maybe. Or maybe still more realistically, I'm, I think it may have been just because of the kind of nomadic life that he had with the herds and the flocks that he had. So maybe the move was to find more grazing area for his herds. Whatever the reason may have been, Abraham now moves south toward Negev, between Kadesh and Shur. And it says that he sojourns or, or lives as a foreigner in this place called Gerar. Now this area is in the southern border of Canaan. And really the people of Gerar are those who will later be known as the Philistines. So this is the land of the Philistines, really, but before they were the Philistines. So this is a new area that Abraham has moved to. A new location, and, and there's apprehension on Abraham's part about what will happen. I mean, we all go through this sometimes, right? When, we, uh, when some change happens in our life. Or even sometimes when we move, when we move a suburb, or we just move from one house to another, or we move interstate, or perhaps move even countries. There's a certain sense of angst and fear and apprehension that we may feel because everything is just so new and you don't know about the people and the things around. And what makes it worse for Abraham is that during those times, 
the king of a certain area could just come and take any woman that he saw for himself. If the woman was married, the husband would be killed and the king would just take the woman for himself. If the woman was unmarried, then the king would still take her and then sometimes some money was given in exchange to the relative, whether it was the father or the brother. So that's the situation that Abraham faces as he's moved to this, as he's sojourning, living as a foreigner in Gerar. But what Abraham does here is both familiar and shocking at the same time to us. If, if you've been with us for the last few months, you know this is something that Abraham has done before. I mean, he's done the old, oh, Sarah is my sister lie to deceive others and keep himself safe. He's done this before. And the same thing happens because he does this, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, takes Sarah into his harem. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same thing that happened in Genesis 12. When he, was, when he had gone to Egypt with his entire household, when there was famine in the land of Canaan. He lied that Sarah was his sister and Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem. Now, perhaps we could say that in Genesis 12, oh, you know, Abraham was a young believer at the time. He was still getting to know the Lord. He was young in his faith. But here in Genesis 20, 25 years have passed since that time in Egypt. 25 years. And the situation is actually worse here in Gerar than in Egypt. Why? Because remember, God had told Abraham just recently in Genesis 17 and 18 that this time next year, you will have that promised offspring, Isaac, through your wife, Sarah. So it's at the, the cusp of this that this is happening. And, and I want you to think about this. Uh, I mean, Sarah is also 25 years older than she was when she was in Egypt. She's 90 years old. 90. So it could well be that you know, there were some physical changes happening to Sarah where she appeared more youthful perhaps in preparation for the baby that she was going to conceive in that old age. Because God was doing the impossible in her. And this could explain why then a 90-year-old would be taken into the king's harem. And the problem with the scene is this. If Sarah gets pregnant by Abimelech, 
then God's promise to them that they would have a child next year between Abraham and Sarah, that promise would be jeopardized. That's what is ultimately at stake here. Now why would Abraham do this? I mean, just because he's fearful of what might happen to him? He's, he's, you know, even after 25 years, he's willing to give his wife away to another man and even risk the fulfillment of God's promises? I mean, does he not trust the Lord with all this? Just, just think about this with me, just about Abraham. It's been 25 years. The Lord has revealed himself to Abraham so many times. The Lord has given him all these promises. He's personally appeared to him many times. He has delivered Abraham from Pharaoh and then even helped him defeat those four powerful kings of Mesopotamia with just a small army. The Lord had given Abraham many assurances about the promises that he would indeed fulfill these promises. Remember, the Lord even walked through the cut pieces of the animals to say that the Lord will absolutely bring his promises to pass. And even when Abraham messed up with Hagar, the Lord then comes to him, assures him, gives him the sign of the circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant promise. Again, you know, a vivid reminder to him, assuring him that he is marked out by the Lord and that these promises will still be fulfilled. And then if you remember, the Lord came to eat with Abraham to show the kind of intimate, close relationship that he has with him. The Lord revealed, to himself, revealed himself to Abraham as God Most High, as, as the God who cares, as God El Shaddai, the God Almighty. And then with the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord has shown himself to be righteous and the one who pours out judgment only to those who deserve it. He's not capricious in his judgment. And at the same time that he's also a merciful God who is willing to spare an entire wicked city even for the sake of ten righteous people. Abraham knows all this and he has experienced all of this. He has known the Lord to be good and faithful and true for 25 years. And after all this, Abraham is now fearful once again about what will happen to him in Gerar. And so he lies about his wife, and Sarah is taken captive. 
I mean, doesn't Abraham believe that God is almighty and he's able to bring about his promises? That he's able to keep them safe? Because obviously they have to be safe if next year they have to have a child. Yes, Abraham does believe. I mean, this is the Abraham that we saw in Genesis 15, counted as righteous. Why? Because he trusts and believes in the Lord. Then why is he acting in unbelief now? Why is he being so inconsistent in his faith? Well, before we throw stones at Abraham, let's just look at our own hearts for a second. Isn't it the same with us as believers? I mean, we believe in the Lord. We believe that we have been forgiven of our sins, counted as righteous because of what the Lord Jesus has done on the cross for us. We believe that the Holy Spirit will finish that work that he has begun in us. He will complete that work. We believe that we will be resurrected on the last day and we will be with Jesus. We believe that God is almighty and sovereign and just and righteous and merciful and gracious. We believe all of that to be true as wholeheartedly. And yet, and yet, when it comes to the difficulties and the problems of everyday life, We can be all so inconsistent in our faith. We believe the great doctrines and we wholeheartedly believe in it. And yet what happens on the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the Thursday? We have a tough time trusting God with that. And then we fear and we act out in sinful ways. Listen to a commentator from almost three quarters of a century ago as he writes on this. Quote, How often those who are not afraid to trust God with their souls are afraid to trust Him with regard to their bodies. How often those who have the full assurance of faith in regard to eternal things are full of unbelief and fear when it comes to temporal things. We have believed in the Lord and it has been counted to us for righteousness, yet how often, like Abraham, in the matter of practical concerns of our daily life, we too have more confidence in our own wisdom and scheming than we have in the sufficiency of God. End quote. So true, isn't it? As Christians, we who have put our trust in Jesus and we believe that we are covered with the righteousness of Christ and we will not be condemned on the final day, we believe all that to be true. 
And yet we struggle to rest in God's care and sovereignty in our everyday issues of life. You know, one way we can combat this inconsistency where we are being inconsistent and then we find ourselves anxious or fearful about something is to really just remind ourselves about who God is. You know, just, just move your mind and heart from the situation and remind yourself of who God is and what He has promised in His Word. And then even just look through your life of how God has proven Himself to be faithful again and again and again and again and again. How He is good and true with everything in our lives. Or as we read in the Gospels, Look at the birds of the air. I mean, if he feeds the little sparrow, how much more of value are you? So here we see Abraham's deception. And really in that deception we see the inconsistency of his faith. Now secondly we look at God's intervention in verses 3 to 7. God's intervention. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. And said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now if you turn for a second to verse 17 of the same chapter, Genesis 20, 17. Right in the end it says, Abraham, uh, pardon me, Abimelech was healed. So it is likely that at this point, Abimelech is inflicted with something. Perhaps it was something deadly. Or it may have affected his sexual function. Or it might have been a combination of both those things. So now God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you're a dead man. I mean, talk about a real nightmare. I mean, this would have been frightening. And why the death sentence for Abimelech? Because God says, the woman you have taken is another man's wife. So now at this point, Abimelech comes to know that Sarah is Abraham's wife. You know, one of the things that you see here is that you can't plead ignorance before God and say, listen, I was ignorant about this sin. 
I guess you could think of it like this. You know, let's just say it's a 60, or let's say it's a 60 zone, and you drive at 100 kilometers. And the policeman comes and catches you. You, you can't tell him, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I just didn't know. I didn't know it was a 60 zone. And that's not going to work with the law. Because there's a certain standard that has been set. And if you break that standard, whether or not you are ignorant of it or not, you are still guilty. So similarly, God has a standard and Abimelech has broken it by taking another man's wife. And so now he stands guilty before God. Now verse 4, it makes it clear that Abimelech had not touched Sarah. And so Abimelech pleads his case. Verses 4 and 5. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech is now pleading with the Lord saying, Lord, see both Abraham and Sarah, they're the ones who deceived me. They're the ones who said they were just brother and sister. I didn't know what was going on between them. I didn't know they were married. My hands and my conscience, they're clean. I had no intention, no motive ever to take another man's wife for myself. I'm totally innocent. And Abimelech even intercedes on behalf of his people in verse 4. Why does he intercede for his people? Because he recognizes that the king represents his people. So when something happens to the king, similar things will happen to his people. And so he asks, again, if you look back at verse 4, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Or more literally, will you kill a righteous people? Does that sound familiar? See, this is a question of God's justice again. It's very similar to Abraham petitioning before the Lord concerning the righteous in Genesis 18. And there's a sense in which now Abimelech is mirroring what Abraham did in Genesis 18 when Abraham was actually acting righteously. Now listen to the Lord's response, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, and therefore I did not let you touch her. It's an amazing statement. See, first the Lord says, yes, I know you're, at least in that temporal way, I know you're innocent. And it shows that the Lord knows the hearts of even pagan people, not just his people, not just his children. He knows the hearts of everyone, even unbelievers. 
But even beyond that, what the Lord says after that shows his absolute sovereignty and rule over the hearts and lives of everyone. See, because think about it. Even though Abimelech brought Sarah into the harem, he was going to do as he pleased with her. The Lord had different purposes. He prevented Abimelech from sinning and even touching Sarah. And now the Lord is even accessing the king's mind and heart in a dream to accomplish his purposes even through this king, this pagan king. That's how sovereign God is. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is like streams of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. See, the Lord directs the hearts and the actions of man. The Lord willed that Abimelech would not sin or touch Sarah. And exactly as the Lord willed came to pass. There was nothing that Abimelech could do that God did not will. So who's got sovereign will here? God or man? It's God. He is sovereign over even the hearts of pagan kings such that he can steer their hearts in any which direction. He doesn't have to take permission. And in this case, he has prevented this king from committing sin. See, knowing that the Lord is so sovereign is a comforting truth for us as believers particularly. Because it is precisely because the Lord is this sovereign, David prays in Psalm 19 verse 13, Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Or as Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6.13, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, keep me from sin. The Lord is sovereign and is absolutely able to do that. And so we pray to him and we rely on him. And in fact, it is precisely because God is absolutely sovereign over the hearts of men that we even pray for the salvation of others. Lord, open their hearts and open their eyes toward you. See, because if the Lord is not utterly sovereign over the hearts and lives of men, there's no point praying that prayer. Because even if God opens their heart, it's of no avail because man still can do something about it. But we have hope. And we have assurance when we pray like that precisely because he is absolutely sovereign over the hearts and lives of everyone. 
The Lord is utterly sovereign over the hearts and lives of men. And in this case, he prevented Abimelech from sinning because the promise of the offspring was in jeopardy. Now here's what the Lord says Abimelech must do. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech, this is what you need to do. You need to return Sarah to Abraham. If you don't, you will surely die and all your people will also die. You know, but what's even more astounding in this verse is how the Lord speaks of Abraham. He tells Abimelech, Abraham is my prophet. Prophet in what sense? Well, he's the one to whom God has revealed his word, where the word of the Lord came to him. We saw that uh, I don't know, quite a few weeks ago. And now he will convey God's revelation and his word to others, and he will also pray for others. That's the job of a priest, much like Moses and Samuel and Jeremiah and so on. And we saw even in this prayer that Abraham is beginning to do that. In Genesis 18, he interceded for Lot and the people of Sodom. And here the Lord is going to tell Abimelech that once you've returned Sarah unharmed, Abraham will pray for you and you will live. Yes, Abraham. Yeah, this guy who deceived you, this guy who's a liar, He's my prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, I mentioned already that there's a sense in which Abimelech, in his intercession for his people, he's mirroring what Abraham did in Genesis 18. So we're actually meant to be comparing Abimelech and Abraham, the true prophet of God. See, in this section, Abimelech, a pagan king, he is righteous and innocent. At least by the behavior that he's shown here. And he's interceding for his people. But God's prophet, on the other hand, Abraham, in this section, is weak in his faith, inconsistent in his faith. He has lied. He has tried to protect himself at the cost of even his own life. He's not thinking about others, and he's put God's promise in jeopardy. That's the comparison. And yet, God says, my prophet will pray for you, once Sarah is returned and you will live. And you say, why? I mean, the pagan king looks more righteous than Abraham in this section. Yeah, that's right. There is nothing intrinsically more righteous about Abraham. 
He's not any more intrinsically more righteous than Abimelech. Even Abimelech recognized that. Then why does Abraham have to pray for Abimelech? Here's the answer. Because the Lord chose Abraham. Because the Lord chose Abraham by his grace and set him apart to be a blessing for others. There's no other reason. Nothing intrinsic about Abraham. It is simply because the Lord chose Abraham by his sovereign grace and set him apart to be a blessing to others. And remember, the Lord promised Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And that is what God is bringing about here. That even in this situation, when he prays, these people will be blessed through Abraham. The only difference between Abimelech and Abraham is the sovereign grace and choice of God. That's the only difference between these two individuals. Now, this is so important for us to understand. Because that's why you have people like the late Mother Teresa, who gave her entire life serving the poor kids in the slums of India, where she trusted in just her own uh, moral virtue to be saved. But she will not be accepted in God's sight. But a Christian, on the other hand, who is relying on the finished work of Jesus by the grace of God and who may not do as many good works as Mother Teresa or somebody else will still be accepted in God's sight. See, because what we need to understand is that no matter how moral or righteous a person is by conduct, it will never meet the perfect standard of righteousness that God demands. God will only accept the righteousness that He provides by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the perfect standard. And no man by himself can attain that standard and that right standing with God. And for those of us who are Christians, we should never lose sight of that grace of God that He has shown to us through Jesus Christ. You know, and the wonderful privilege that we have that God would use weak, frail, fallen people like you and me to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, to be a blessing to others. That's the ultimate way we can bless others. And we get that privilege not because as Christians we are in of ourselves more superior or special, but only because the Lord chose us by His grace to be instruments in this world as weak as we may be.
So that's God's intervention. Now we come to Abimelech's confrontation in verses 8 through 13. Abimelech's confrontation. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and the men were very much afraid. So what the Lord had told Abimelech in this frightening dream certainly had an impact on Abimelech. I mean, he's acting quickly, you know, responding, you know, early in the morning he wakes up. And he calls all his servants, meaning all of his officials, really. And tells them about what the Lord had just told him in the dream. And he says, listen, I'm going to die unless this woman, Sarah, is returned to her husband. In fact, if Sarah is not returned, it's not just me who's going to die. We're all going to die. That's what the God of Abraham told me. And now they're all afraid. These pagan people have heard what God has said. And it's evoked a, a fearful response that they're going to do whatever it takes. That they're going to do whatever it is that God has said for them to do. Because now they're afraid of this God. Perhaps they've even heard of some things from Sodom and how that happened as well. And really here at this point, this, it's a bit like in the book of Jonah. Where the pagan sailors and the Ninevites, they become more fearful of God than the prophet himself. Abimelech now calls Abraham and he accuses him. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you do, did this thing? Abraham is being reproved by Abimelech. You know, just question after question after question. What have you done, Abraham? I mean, this is a similar question that Pharaoh asked when he rebuked Abraham when he was in Egypt, when he did the same thing and caused all that trouble in Egypt. And the irony, just like over there, even here is that the pagan king is the one who's rebuking the Lord's prophet for his actions. And you get a sense that God is using Abimelech to rebuke Abraham. Why do I say that? Because it, it echoes these words. What have you done? It echoes the words that God said to Eve back in the garden after she sinned. In Genesis 3.13, where he looks at Eve and says, in Genesis 3.13, What have you done? 
Or after Esau killed his brother in Genesis 4.10 and he looks at Esau and says, What have you done? So the unbeliever here is an instrument in the Lord's hand to correct the believer and expose the sin of the believer. What a sovereign God. No, what a gracious God. So what does Abraham say in response to what have you done? He makes this case, but they're they're all just sorry excuses and blame shifting. Here's the first one, verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham was so wrong about his assumption about what would happen. He was wrong about these people. I mean, again, there's irony here because here the people of of Gerar fear God and the one who is not operating and the one who is not actually fearing God is Abraham. Abraham, in this case, he's dominated by fear of man rather than the fear of God. He's not trusting God. I mean, and, and we can act very similar to this as believers as well. Let me just give you just one example. Just particularly as we make assumptions about unbelievers. Oh, they're not going to change. Oh, this is definitely going to be a disaster. Oh, I can't reach out to those unbelievers but, because, you know, they're just lost, so lost. They're so gone. They, they have no fear of God. And so I'm not going to be a blessing to them. Or, or then from that, oh, I, I don't think the Lord will ever save anyone through me. Even though I know for a fact that the Lord has chosen me by His grace and placed me here on this earth to represent Him and to tell others about Jesus. That's the very reason why He has kept me alive even today. See, when we start thinking like that, and we're simply making assumptions, We're simply letting the fear of man get a hold of us. When we should be fearing God and honoring God and trusting God. Now, Abraham now sort of tries to further elaborate and make more excuses. And it starts getting worse now. Verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. What's he saying? Well, technically, she's my half-sister. So it's a half-truth at least, right? 
But here's the thing, he presented it in such a way, it was only half truth, and he presented it in such a way so that the rest of the truth could be hidden. This is still deception, this is still a lie. I mean, if you go back to his first reason, he said, I thought they were going to kill me, why? Because she's my wife. So he still wants to lie about her being a wife. So he knew that was wrong. So he purposely hides that and just gives some truth and intentionally deceives and lies. And then he adds on to one last, uh, one last excuse, and this is the worst one of them all. Verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, speaking of Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Do you know what he's saying? Abraham is saying, hey, I, I just want you to know this as well, uh, king of Abimelech, king of Gerar. This is not a unique situation. It's not just because of you or the people here. This is really our modus operandi wherever we go. I mean, we saw this with them the first time when they went to Egypt 25 years ago. He's doing the same thing now. And according to Abraham, what he's saying is, hey, that's because I have an agreement that I've made with Sarah 25 years ago. Sarah, my dear wife, you know, if you truly love me, if you understand we are in this covenant relationship, and that kindness there that's mentioned, the kindness you must, it's that hesed love, that covenant love. If you love me this way, then you must Life on my behalf anywhere we go. Every place that we move to, this is what you must do. It's crazy, right? Abraham, the father of the faith. You know, thankfully, they had to do it only twice. One in Egypt, that was one time when they moved and this is the second time they've moved. But what you see is, this is a long-standing sin for Abraham, and he's even dragging his wife into this. A few things that I want to point out here, time is very quickly moving. You know, firstly, wives, if your husband asks you to sin, it's not okay. If your husband asks you to sin, it is not okay. Your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord, not your husband. Or maybe it's an, another situation, another relationship, and, and you know perhaps you foolishly got into an agreement or you gave your word to this person. And then you later realize, oh, oh this is unwise and it doesn't honor the Lord. Then you should break that agreement. 
See, because ultimately, it is not your word that is ultimately binding. It's your allegiance to the Lord that is ultimately binding. And honoring Him, that is what is ultimately binding. And, and secondly, you know, each of us have propensity to certain sins. You know, some of the sin struggles that I have may not be the same kind of sin struggles you have. But we all have our proclivities, our own tendencies to particular sins. And sometimes others are more aware of it than we ourselves. But all of us have a propensity to certain kinds of sins. And sometimes it even remains in the heart and we just kind of nurse it and we just keep it there hidden. But you know what the Lord does? In His kindness and His goodness and His grace, He brings about circumstances. He brings about people. Sometimes even rebuke from unbelievers to expose that sin in us so that we can turn away from it and turn to the Lord. That's a grace from God. And sometimes when we don't get it, God will repeatedly expose it till we turn from it. Oh, that we would see the grace of God in our lives when, we, when He exposes the sin in our hearts, whether it's through circumstances, through others, through trials, through the pressures of life. It's a good thing because what is God doing? He's, he's squeezing out all the muck in your life. He's squeezing out all the rubbish in my heart so that ultimately I would cling to the Lord and Lord alone. So that too is a grace from God. So that's Abimelech's confrontation and very quickly God's restitution in verses 14 through 18. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So this is public restitution that's going on. And what you see is that Abimelech gives Abraham more riches similar to Pharaoh. Sheep and oxen and male and female servants. And A Abraham is getting more wealthy. And Abraham gets his wife unharmed. And then Abraham even gets the pick of the land in Gerar. Better pasture lands for his herds. And where that land of his is increasing now. See, because Abimelech is thinking, hey, this guy is a prophet of this powerful God. 
this just God and a very powerful and sovereign God who knows what's in my heart, who knows what other people think and, and can do various things. And so I want to keep this guy near me in my good books. And I want to give him the best of my land. And so this turns out even better than Egypt because in Egypt, you remember, Pharaoh said, just basically get out of Egypt. He was banished from Egypt. But here the, the king says, no, 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 you, you stay in this land. I want you close to me and I'll give you everything. And then on top of that, he gives them 100 pieces of silver. And this 100 pieces of silver, it's a huge sum of money. It's, it's really a fortune. You know, what one commentator said that if you were to calculate the daily laborer's wage, which was half a shekel or something at the time, this would amount to 167 years for a day laborer to earn this kind of money. 167 years to earn this kind of money at that time. And so he gives this huge sum of money. Why? To tell everyone that, hey, Sarah is innocent. I have not touched her in any way. She is vindicated. And why is this so important? Because of the promise of God. Because remember, God said within a year, Sarah, you're going to have a son. And that's what we will see in the next chapter. And so when she has a son, no one can point to Abimelech and say, oh, you know what, that was actually Abimelech's son. No, nothing happened here. She's innocent. She's vindicated. This huge amount of money is proof of that. And the king wants to publicly want everyone to know that. And Abraham now turns to pray for Abimelech and his people. Verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and notice again, and God healed Abimelech. So he obviously had something, whether it's the deadly affliction or some sexual dysfunction or a combination of both something. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I wonder what kind of prayer that was. I mean, Abraham standing before God and Abimelech is there. What is he going to pray? Lord, please forgive the sinner. Oh, Lord, please forgive this sinner. He's a sinner just like me. I mean, he would have totally, totally seen the grace of God at work in his life where God has spared him, where God has blessed him and been gracious to him and now is even giving him an opportunity to bless others just according to his promise. Abraham, regardless of who you are, I will make you a blessing for others. Oh, the grace of God. I wonder if there's anyone here who's not a Christian. 
I just want to tell you this, friend, as we've seen even from this passage. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God and to be accepted in God's sight. Nothing. Because God's standard is so high. And yet the good news is this. That God has provided a way by which sinners can be accepted in God's sight. How did he do that? He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world. Who lived a perfectly righteous life. And then died for unrighteous, sinful people like you and me. And then he rose up on the third day. Providing the way for the forgiveness of sin for all those who would come to him in repentance and faith. Would you turn to him this day? See, the good news is, yeah, it is not on your works. Never think, oh, I, I, I can never follow this God. I can never be a Christian. Oh, there is hope because it is all of God. It is all because it's the sovereign grace of God and it is nothing of man. And so there is hope for you even this day. Would you not turn to him and trust him and rely on what the Lord Jesus has done? And if you do, then turn away from your sin and continue to follow Jesus by his grace. What we see in this passage is God being faithful to his promise even when his people are unfaithful. What we see here is in the, even in the mess of things, even as Abraham has messed up again, God, by his grace, even uses those messes and pressures and consequences to purify Abraham's faith till he learns to trust in God and God alone to take care of him. And the funny thing is, even God's promises are being worked out. You know, he promised Abraham, I will curse those who curse you. So when King Abimelech came against Abraham, affliction for this king and his people. And when things, when they were acting well with Abraham, they were blessed as well. This morning as I end, I want to remind you that this is the life of faith. That it will never be perfect. But our God is gracious and good. So much so that he's so concerned about our reliance on him. Because that is what is ultimately good for us and what is for his glory. So he will use circumstances. He will use people. He will use the stresses of life and the pressures of life to purify our faith till we learn to rely on him that he indeed will carry us through till the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace that you've shown to us through Jesus Christ. And we know that while we are weak, ultimately it is you who sovereignly uphold us. Help us to just rely on you, rely on your strength and your power rather than focusing on ourselves and our weakness. And we pray that as a result, 
we would represent you, live obedient lives, and give you glory and honor and make much of Jesus. We thank you for listening to our prayer, for we pray this in Jesus' precious name.